0: do something too. On a day like today, for you to get out of bed and be at church, give yourself a round of applause. That's huge. I'll be honest with you. For a split second, I thought about not showing up this morning. So the fact that you're here is huge. Julie goes, honey, you're preaching. So I decided to go ahead and show. Julie's my wife, by the way. Anyway, it's great to be with you in the house. How about launching a brand new series called Icebergs? icebergs, you know that song that they just did so unbelievably, I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. I, I get that when it talks about shake it off, shake it off. And I think that we all at the beginning of a new year understand what that feels like to want to maybe start something or a lot of things maybe new from the way they have been. It's interesting that that song, you know, from Florence and the Machine, Florence Welch actually had some comments about that song. It was written in the studio while they were recording that particular album. And this is what she said about that song. She said, I was thinking of regrets, like, you know, when you feel like you're stuck in yourself, you keep repeating certain patterns of behavior, and you kind of want to cut out that part of you and restart yourself. You want to restart yourself. I think that's one of the great opportunities that we have when a new year rolls around, that we can actually restart some things to kind of hit the reset button and go back. And that's what icebergs is all about. Now, an iceberg, if you just look at it on the surface of the water, a lot of times they're beautiful. They're very appealing and it's kind of like, oh, oh, and even, even kind of majestic. But did you know that statistically better than 90% of an iceberg's mass, of its weight, actually lies below the surface of the water. We can't even see 90% of an iceberg. And so the fact of the matter is that we all have icebergs in our lives. Certain things that maybe look great on the surface and are even maybe kind of attractive and appealing, but the reality is if we drift too close to those things... They can absolutely wreck our relationships. They can torpedo businesses and scar families for generations unless, unless we're very, very deliberate about inviting Jesus, the gospel, the good news into our lives and allowing that good news to permeate and perfect every part of our lives. That's what God is all about. That's what this series is all about. Now today, we're going to begin by looking at the iceberg of anger. The iceberg of anger. I want you to look at your neighbor and with New Year's passion and enthusiasm, tell him, get you some anger. anger. Now some of you may be sitting next to somebody that you wish would reduce their anger, but we're going to take a completely different as we look at anger, I'm gonna. There we go. It's getting caught on this very manly beard. So, <laughs> anger a lot of times can be an incredible gift. Anger is a neutral. You might wanna write that down in your program. Anger is a neutral, it's not good or bad in and of itself. It's like fire, it's like money. It's like a hammer. You can use it for positive, constructive means or for negative, destructive means. The choice is yours. The choice is mine, how we handle anger. Now, when I talk about an iceberg, the iceberg of anger or some of the other icebergs that we'll deal with throughout this series, I think it's important for us to begin with just a working definition of what an iceberg in our lives is really all about. And here's just something to write down and just know what we're talking about. An iceberg in life is a hazard whose greatest threat lies beneath the surface. It's a hazard whose greatest threat lies beneath the surface. Anger can be just such an iceberg. A few years ago, actually more than just a few years ago, I was coaching my daughter Emily's third grade basketball team. They were very young and And I was coaching this girls' basketball team, and we had games on Saturday. And in this particular league, there was a rule. There were a couple of rules. Number one, you could not double-team. And number two, you could not full-court press the opposite team. We were going to teach the fundamentals of man-to-man or person-to-person defense. And and so there was no pressing and no double-teaming. Well, one particular Saturday, Emily is bringing the ball up the court, bringing it up. And before she crossed midcourt, two girls from the other team saw an opportunity and they both went at Emily to steal the ball and they did steal the ball and drove down and put it up for a layup. Well, Emily, who always has had a very clear sense of justice, particularly when she's been victimized, (laughs) looked at me and she went, they're double teaming, third grade. And I said to her, what are you going to do about it? And I saw her jaw clench from the sideline, and she ran down, she got the ball, took the inbounds pass, and started bringing the ball back up court again with a determined look on her face. Well, these two girls who, in fairness to them in the third grade, I really don't think they understood the intricacies of a full court press or double teaming. They just realized they had found a flaw in my offensive game plan, and were going to exploit it one more time. So they went after Emily, double-teamed her, stole the ball, and this time instead of stomping her foot and looking at me, I saw my daughter, the princess, turn and draw a bead on this girl who was getting ready to go up for what she thought was an uncontested layup when Emily knocked her into the cheap seats. <laughs> I ran out and I apologized to the other coach. I said, I'm sorry. She's just like her mother. I apologize. I <laughs> apologize. Man, isn't it scary when you start to see yourself come out in your kids? That was her ditty. That was me coming out in her. Now, here's what I really believe about that moment. I don't think, even now, with the benefit of hindsight, that Emily was genuinely angry at that little girl. But I think anger was the only tool that she had at her disposal in her little third grade mind and heart to deal with a situation that she didn't know what to do with. I would love to tell you that at 48 years old, I can't understand that, but I'll pray for you. I get it. A lot of times, anger can become such a toxic tonic in our lives. It can become such a knee-jerk reaction and a reflex that what we're really doing is skipping over some very, very important things. Now... I'm going to get to that in just a minute, but in Ephesians chapter number four, the apostle Paul, inspired by God, is writing to the church in Ephesus, and in this letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul is explaining to them, and by extension to you and me, how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, works itself out, and and how we live it out every day. Yes, we gather together on the weekends, but Jesus ain't just a Sunday thing, baby. Jesus is an Every day, kind of thing. The gospel is an everyday, every moment kind of thing. And in Ephesians 4, Paul teaches the church at Ephesus and us how even the gospel even applies when we get angry, when we we get mad. And he's got some incredible words for us about how we handle that. before we get into how to do that, I want to kind of go to the almost end of the story and show you kind of what our destination is. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 4:26 and 27. He says, "And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil." That is a great passage of scripture. Notice he doesn't say sin is an abomination before the Lord. He doesn't say, thou shalt not become angry. He never says that. He says, don't let your anger control you. Other translations say, in your anger, do not sin. Anger can be a very godly reaction. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think even Jesus got mad. Jesus got angry. The Bible tells us just before he was crucified, he came back into the city of Jerusalem and he was going to the temple for worship. And when he entered kind of the outer courts of the temple, he noticed that there were people set up for commerce. They, they were selling things to people who were, and they were praying on their desire for worship. And then when I say praying in the temple, I mean P-R-E-Y. They were predators and they were trying to sell things to them to, to help them worship better, trying to make money off of people's faith. And Jesus, the Bible says, became incensed at that, so angry that the Bible says Jesus, the Son of God who never sinned, made on the spot a cord and a whip, a whip of cords. And he drove the money changers out of the temple, turning over their tables. I mean, he threw a holy hissy fit. But he did not sin. In his anger, he didn't sin, but he got angry. Sometimes anger is a God-honoring endeavor. But you and I both know, sometimes our sin can be a self-serving endeavor. A lot of times, if I were to be completely honest with myself and before God, I would say, you know what? Sometimes I've just kind of gotten angry just because I felt like it. I I just kind of, I just, it was time. And and I, I had had enough, and I just had to blow off some steam. That's not the same thing that Jesus did. And to get at how we live out of what Jesus did rather than what we are drawn to naturally, I want to go back into Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, back before that verse that we read just a second ago, Paul says this in verse 17 and 18. Watch this. He says, with the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. Now, to our 21st century mind, that can sound kind of prejudiced at first. Like, whoa, Paul's kind of anti-Gentile. Nothing could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, elsewhere, Paul refers to himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. He loved those who were not Of Jewish ancestry he was passionate about reaching them with the gospel and seeing the gospel permeate and perfect their lives but he's drawing a very clear distinction here between people who live in relationship with Christ and those who don't and Paul says under the Lord's authority that those who walk with God those who have a relationship with Jesus ought to handle life differently because if you keep God at arm's length Maybe you're kind of giving God the Heisman Trophy stiff arm. Your life's going to be different. Whereas when you invite God into it, when you respond to his grace initiative, the grace of God, the gospel, good news, touches every single part of life. But look at what he says there. He says, they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness because they've closed their minds and they've hardened their hearts against him. They have chosen to harden their hearts against God. They've chosen to go, no, uh -uh. uh-uh. And that leads to confusion. It it leads to darkness. God is light. He lights our path, shows us the way that we were created to live. And, And what Paul's getting at here is something that we see throughout the Bible. The Bible says that reverence for God is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter number one. Reverence for God is the beginning of wisdom. And so Paul's kind of pulling that thread a little bit here. And as he pulls that thread, he is tying together reverence for God. And by reverence, we mean saying, you are God, I am not. That's reverence. That's putting God in his rightful place, responding and realizing where we are in comparison and in relationship with God. And with that, Paul's tying together wisdom for life, making good choices, doing the right thing at the right time. And he's combining these two as the Bible does from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. And here, Paul is saying so. We already know where he's going because he's talking about anger in just a few verses, right? So what he's telling us here is that we are to evaluate our anger. Evaluate your anger. When you get mad, when I get mad, let's really and truly, in the wisdom of God, ask for God's wisdom and evaluate where that anger's coming from. Because the fact of the matter is that many, many times, my anger, a lot of times your anger is actually a secondary emotion. A lot of times anger is just kind of a quick, easy answer to a deeper, more maybe systemic or entrenched issue that's really going on in our lives. For example, if we were to really evaluate a lot of our anger, I think at the root of our anger, a lot of times we would find fear. Fear can produce a lot of anger. When when we're afraid to be vulnerable, when we're afraid that maybe we're about to be threatened or we're being threatened in our personhood or in our life or in our marriage or in our work, rather than being honest about it, and going, you know what, this is not good. You, you're kind of crossing some lines here. Or as a guy saying, you know what, truth of the matter is I'm afraid. I, I'm afraid that I'm not going to measure up maybe to what you, you think your dad thought you should be or, or what you think your wife or your girlfriend or your boss, you're, you're afraid. And so rather, because men, let's be honest. I mean, come on. Twisted blue steel doesn't get afraid, Right. So rather than say we're afraid, we get mad. Mad, man, we, we live like that. We're like, I'd much rather admit to being angry than being afraid. How could I be afraid? I'm 10 feet tall and bulletproof. I mean, seriously, body fat of 6%. Not really. So, how do we really and truly evaluate that anger? How do we evaluate it? Maybe fear. Sometimes it's pride that triggers our anger. And not all pride is bad, by the way. I'm, I'm not talking about the kind of prideful arrogance that we see from time to time, but, but the pride of who God created you to be, the pride of, of who you are in Christ. When we start to feel that threatened man, a lot of times we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Instead of saying, hey, you know, Jesus says I'm worth more than the way you're talking to me right now, we get mad, we get angry. And a lot of times, it can be a very low-grade boil, a simmering kind of chronic anger. It could be fear. It could be pride. Sometimes it's just because we're hurt. Sometimes it's just the fact of the matter is you hurt my feelings. And if, if you hurt me, I'm going to get you back. I'm going I'm to mark that down. I'm going to remember That Everybody talks about the memory of an elephant. Can we talk about the memory of a woman for just a minute? (laughs) I know I'm not the only one that has noticed this. Now, don't send me an email. Don't get mad or offended or hurt. I'm just saying, men, we deal with fear. Sometimes women, you deal with hurt and and you remember stuff better than we do. And by stuff, I mean everything. That's part, of, <laughs> that's part of your giftings. That's part of the beauty of who God created you to be. We celebrate that. But if you, if you hang on to a mad, if you hang on to an anger, it's not healthy. It's not what God created you for, male or female. Sometimes it just hurt. But there's a fourth primary emotion that I think a lot of times anger swings by. And and that's the emotion of frustration. Frustration. I think that's what Emily was experiencing on the basketball court when she was in third grade. She was frustrated. These girls stole the ball from her, they made points. She didn't know what to do with it, so she got mad and she got even. Not necessarily godly, but she felt better about it in the moment. Now, here's the deal. I could I could go on and diesel on and describe in detail for you what this looks like and some of the consequences, some of the results. But I think it will stick with you better if I will show you what this looks like, what what it looks like in our lives so that you're aware of this on a regular basis. I don't know if you notice this, but there's been this rope here throughout the entire service. And this is not like a CrossFit gym or something that we do during the week or whatever. This is actually a purpose. There's a method to the madness, if you will. There, there's a reason why this rope is up here. There's a reason why these gentlemen are swinging it to me as we speak. Thanks, Gilbert. I appreciate it. Now, the rope, this is a great rope right here. I mean, I could climb it all the way to the top, but that'd be, I don't feel like showing off. Um, but the rope here is a powerful illustration. I, I, would, I would refer to this as the rope of rage. And the rope of rage is, let's be honest, a lot of times easier. Let's say that our primary emotions that we were talking about just a second ago, we we put right here on this podium. And we say, here's where I put my, my fear. Here's where I put my pride. Here's where I put my hurt. Here's where I put my frustration. And that's the real stuff. But can we just be honest with each other and ourselves? Dealing with those things is hard Dadgum work. That's hard work to get at the root of those things. Get at those. It's a lot better. It's a lot easier to jump on the rope of rage. It's a lot, it's a lot easier. Let me show you what I'm talking about. It's a lot easier to get on this rope and just go, you know what? I'm not dealing with the primary. I'm gonna get on this secondary rope and just swing over here. That way I don't have to mess with that over there. And then once I've gotten on the rope of rage, oh my goodness. I don't know how to tell you this, but I actually enjoyed that. That was kind of fun. I'm going to ride the rope of rage one more time, and I'm going to get out here, and I'm going to ride it. And that way all of those primary issues stay right there. We don't have to talk about it. We can turtle up and just kind of keep to ourselves, and the rope of rage becomes our absolute favorite ride in life. Thanks, Gilbert. Appreciate that. Now... Here's the thing you've got to understand. This isn't about a monkey in church. <laughs> this is about you and me being willing to invite the Holy Spirit of God into our lives and allow his wisdom to evaluate our anger. What am I really angry about? Am I angry about something that offended God? Am I angry about something that somebody did legitimately or am I angry because I'm afraid? Am I angry because I'm hurt or am I angry because I'm frustrating? Evaluating anger requires the wisdom of God. That's why Paul talked here about wisdom into this conversation about anger. I've already showed you where he's going in the end game, the almost end game. But he continues in verse 20. He says, this darkening of your mind, this hard-heartedness, verse 20, that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Now, I want to encourage you, write down that phrase on your, on your notes page there, write down the phrase, corrupted by lust and deception. This sermon is not going where you're thinking it's going. That is a great phrase, corrupted by lust and deception. That is awesome. Tell your neighbor right now, you're corrupted. You're corrupted. Oh, come on now. This, I'm telling you, this is good news. I am tell- I promise you, I've never lied to you. Tell your neighbor with passion and New Year's enthusiasm, you're corrupted. you're corrupted. Let me tell you why that's good news. If something is corrupted, let's say a computer file. Take you and me out of the frying pan for just a second. If a computer file is corrupted, that means that it is, it is tainted, it's tarnished from its original intent. It can't work as well as it was originally intended to work. So what this passage of Scripture tells me is, yes, I'm corrupted, but ultimately, and before the world ever got started, I was created. You were created for purposes that are good and right and true. You were created for those things. It's it's our... It's our lust and our deceptions that corrupt the original intent. So when I when I sometimes you know we think about lust and we think about you know pictures and all that other stuff, but sometimes we can be lustful with anger. We just like I just I just it just feels so good. I love being mad right now. It is awesome. We say things like. I just got to be real. I'm just being authentic. I, I'm, just, I'm just keeping it real, man. I, I'm just telling you like it is. I'm, I'm being authentic. Well, here's the deal. You can be authentic, but don't be an authentic jerk. Don't be. That, that, there, nobody gets licensed to be authentically Rude. We evaluate our anger. But Paul says we've got to throw off our old self. The old self, before Jesus, the old self is the self that was corrupted, tainted, and tarnished. When Jesus enters your life, when he enters my life, he begins the process, the Bible says, of perfecting us. Of bringing us back to our original intent And purpose. Remember, the original intent and purpose was good and true and right. And so it's a process that he invites us into when we come into relationship with him. Not just because we come into the church building, but when we come into relationship personally and dynamically and day in and day out. And when that happens, when we begin to see what is going on, we choose to respond to his grace initiative. And we throw off the old self. We quit leaning on the excuses. Well, that's just the way I am. Sometimes we even hyper-spiritualize that. That's just the way God made me. No. God made you to be true and right and uncorrupted. It's our sin that blemishes and taints and tarnishes the original intent. Look at what Paul says going on, verse 23 and 24. He says, instead, instead, Let the Spirit, capital S, Spirit of God, renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. He says, put off that old stuff. Let that old junk go. Put on the new self in Christ. Here's what he's saying. And this is a great church word, but we're going to get into it because it's important that we understand this. First of all, evaluate your anger. But here, Paul, under the authority of God, says consecrate your anger. Consecrate. Say consecrate. consecrate. I was trying to concentrate. No, not concentrate. Consecrate. To consecrate something means to set it aside for divine purposes. Set it aside, set it apart. For divine purposes. Not profane purposes. Not selfish purposes. But to set it aside for God purposes. Jesus' anger in the temple courts, that was divine anger. That was a holy moment. God's wrath, his anger is real. It's there. And, and you know, a lot of times churches and, and church folks... Pastors have have maybe overcommunicated the anger and the wrath of God. I, I understand that. This is not one of those churches where man, we love to preach hell. <laughs> we don't. But it's real. God's anger is real, and God's anger is at sin. That's what God gets angry at. God gets angry at the sin that corrupts his original creation and intent and design and he's so angry about it that he chose to give us Jesus he's so angry that the relationship he created us for is ruptured that Jesus was offered as the solution to the ruptured relationship his anger is real don't don't think that it's not but understand That even God's anger is rooted in his love. Sometimes as a parent, we we get angry with our kids, don't we? And and sometimes our anger is well-placed. Sometimes, you know, you get that little twitch in your eye. I love you. But we've talked about this. You know what I'm talking about? Why? Because we know that they are unnecessarily complicating their lives. If they tell a lie, for example, hypothetically, they're complicating their lives unnecessarily. And we've told them that. We're like, sweetheart, angel, pumpkin, tell the truth. Okay. Daddy loves you. We get angry because we know that they are choosing to complicate their lives unnecessarily. Life will get complicated enough. Even God's anger is rooted in His love. So that is part of how we evaluate our anger. Does it reflect God's love, God's purposes, God's principles? God's truth. Ephesians 4, 31. As we consecrated our anger, Paul says this. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Isn't that fascinating? Paul starts out talking about hard-heartedness, confusion. And through that begins to talk about evaluating our anger and then consecrating the anger, but then he says, "Just get rid of it." Who says, "Oh I can't. You don't know what was done to me. I'm mad. I'm hurt. Get rid of all rage, bitterness, slander. You know what slander is, don't you? Slander is when you tell the truth in order to hurt somebody. Slander in the original Greek is spelled T-M-Z. Get rid of it. That junk will mess you up. It will corrupt and tarnish and taint. But be tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. God in Christ forgave you. Anger can be a massive iceberg. It can sink your ship. It can sink your family. It can sink your business. But God's got something better for you. And he invites you into that in Jesus. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. Because God invites us into that something better in Jesus. Every single day. To live in relationship with him. To put off the old self and put on the new self in Christ. If you're here today and you have never stepped into that relationship, in just a minute, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. It's not a ceremony. It doesn't take a certain grade on a test. It just takes a willing heart that chooses to follow him, to give him every part of your life and step into that perfect, forever love right here right now if that's you I want to invite you just to pray right where you're sitting just talking to God just say Jesus just silently just talk to him just silently from your heart to his say Jesus I need you and so I give you my life all of it right here right now I confess my sin to you I claim your forgiveness to live in relationship with you from this moment forward forever. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. would just remain in a spirit of prayer for another moment with your heads bowed and your eyes closed because this is a sacred moment when God's moving in people's lives it's a divine appointment and if you are one of those people or maybe the one who just prayed to enter into that relationship with Christ and you meant it for the first time in your life I wanna just make sure that you understand this is the greatest moment of your life. It's the most significant, the most important moment. And so with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, you, you need to mark this moment for yourself, in your mind, in your heart, to know that it's real, that it's forever, that January the 11th, 2015, on a cold Sunday in Austin, was where it all began for you and so in this sacred moment with our heads bowed if you would if that was your prayer just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment as you mark this moment and with your hands up I want you to know that this church wants to be a family of faith we want to help any way that we can as you grow in this new relationship as you step into it going forward And so as a church, we honor that moment in your life. And as you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.